2: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Viedemann about the book, the Silken Thread, Five Insects and Their Impacts on Human History, written by him and his colleague, Ray Fisher. Insects are seldom mentioned in discussions surrounding human history, yet they have dramatically impacted today's societies. In The Silken Thread, entomologists Robert Wiedemann and Ray Fisher link the history of insects to history of empires, cultural exchanges, and warfare. Well, Robert, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, good to be here.
0: So how are you, how was your week?
2: Uh, it's been an interesting week. My wife and I moved uh, 3000 kilometers west across the US to uh, the city of Portland, Oregon.
0: Oh wow, congratulations. Do you like it there yeah. now?
2: Uh, we do, We've, we visited a number of times. Our daughter and her husband live here and we decided we wanted to be closer to them. So, uh, so we moved.
0: Excellent. So, can you tell us what do you do?
2: Well, I've retired. I was I'm a professor emeritus of entomology. Uh, I spent a career as an entomologist, working first on uh, what's called biological control, using beneficial insects uh, to combat uh, insect and weed pests, um, and I did that for most of my career, and and then. I uh, spent about a decade as an administrator, department head, and stepped down from that. And I spent the last six years of my career uh, in the classroom teaching an undergraduate class uh, for non-majors called Insects, Science, and Society. And it was the most fun I had in my entire career. Absolutely a joy.
0: And how did you get interested in studying insects?
2: I was not one who collected insects as a child. Many entomologists have lifelong interest in insects. I didn't know a beetle from a butterfly when I started. And uh, my interest, uh, actually, I got into biology uh, because I was interested in birds and still am, and thought I would be uh, an avian ecologist. And along the way, I got some advice and uh, at the time the job market was not favorable for avian ecologists so I I switched and the story I say is uh, or that I tell is that birds didn't have enough wings or legs so I had to switch to insects uh,
0: That's fair enough <laughs> and wh- why did you stick with academia what really, do you, what, really what do you like about academia
2: well, Just the uh, the ability to uh, to discover new things and to be able to pass that on either in, uh, in the forms of written communication publications or teaching in the classroom. I absolutely enjoyed uh, teaching um, first for the first dozen 15 years uh, teaching graduate students specialty courses and then the last six years uh, teaching undergraduates. And so uh, conveying what has been found in the laboratory or in the field, uh, turning that into something that's understandable and um, can be appreciated by students was, uh, was really a lot of fun.
0: What would you say to our student listeners and maybe early career researchers?
2: Well, uh, first of all, find something that you're absolutely passionate about because if you're conducting research, whether as a student or early career researcher, uh, you have to have the passion for the subject to be willing to devote the time and energy uh, and and really most of your thinking toward that. Uh, So have a a passion for a subject, Uh, be willing and able to convey the information to a broad audience, uh, certainly to your scientific peers, but you need to be able to explain what you're doing to non-specialists, to the public. Um, You know, the public are the ones that support the sciences uh, in one way or another, and so uh, getting them to understand and appreciate what you're doing uh is is of real importance we used to teach our students to learn what they call an elevator talk a two-minute talk that explains what you did what you found why does it uh, matter to the person you're speaking to uh in order to boil down what you are doing and make yourself understand what you're doing to be able to um to convey that to someone else And, um, and so those, those matter also finding, a uh, and developing and cultivating a network of peers, uh, because you rely on, uh, peers for, I think for the rest of your career and for many aspects of that, whether it's, uh, for, um, understanding what you're doing, uh, being able to provide criticism, and, um, and and really for support as you move along. So uh, being able to speak to a broad audience, having a passion and developing uh, a network of peers I think would be advice I would give.
0: Excellent. So your book is called The Silken Thread, Five Insects and Their Impacts on Human History, and you wrote it with your colleague Ray Fisher. So what inspired you to write it?
2: We, um, well, the the subjects that were in the book uh, were taught in the non-majors class that I taught. Uh, so it, there were, I guess I incorporated insects in history in much of the, the class throughout the semester. And um, along the way, I had a, a short sabbatical in New Zealand and, my colleague there at the time, unfortunately, since passed away uh, and I were recording uh, short stories and the stories came out of the lectures and And he said, you know, you really ought to write these up into a book. And, and uh, I had heard that before from some other colleagues, one of those being Ray Fisher. Uh, They said, you really need to write these into a book. And I kept, uh, it was very Shakespearean. I said, tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow. (laughs) And I never got around to it. And then uh, I retired. And suddenly it seemed like I had some time on my hands. Uh, And I, uh, I met with Ray Fisher. Ray was the the. The perfect uh, um, co author. He, he's uh, absolutely brilliant, uh, knows more about biology than I think everybody I've ever met, and um, uh, a whiz at finding obscure references. I'll talk about that again later. Uh, and so Ray and I used to meet about every two weeks for lunch, and he was encouraging me to, to put something together. And I said, Well, I will if you will help. And so uh, he said, well, you know, you've talked about it forever. Let's see if you're serious. So let's meet again in two weeks and see if you have a draft of something written. And so two weeks later, we met uh, for lunch once again, and I plopped down on the table uh, two draft chapters, uh, an outline for the book, and a prospectus to go to um, uh, to a uh, an editor and so at that point ray thought okay you're pretty serious about mm-hmm. this and so um uh, so we pursued it from there i will say that was uh, february or the beginning of march of 2021 and uh i'm sorry 2020 and uh right then covid arrived and so we were no longer meeting and we had to write our book um, by using Zoom, uh, which presented its own challenges. Um, but um, so anyway, it worked out quite well. though.
0: OK, so let's dive into the book. And can we start with a very basic so we know that everybody's on the same page? Can you describe what do entomologists do?
2: Well, entomologists uh, study insects and their relatives. So, uh, insects, uh, arth- other arthropods uh, like mites, spiders, uh, ticks, etc., but all aspects of the the biology of uh, of arthropods, um, and we wrote this book not for entomologists. Uh, We tried to write it for um, uh, a very broad audience. And and in fact, at the very beginning, when we thought, I thought, we would write about a lot of insects and just anecdotes about each one. And Ray uh, Fisher correctly uh, pointed out that we could do that, but it would, first of all, take forever to do. And secondly, be of interest only to other entomologists. And so uh, Ray said, we should scale this down. Let's write it about five insects. And, um, and so we settled on that, on that number uh, very quickly. But entomologists anyway, writing about or studying arthropods and insects.
0: So as you said, you settled on five insects. And how did you choose those five?
2: You know, it was it was interesting. Uh, We we very quickly agreed uh, once we decided five and there was a short uh, skirmish about uh, maybe we should have six because insects have six legs after all. Uh, But we uh, we came to agreement that five would work and uh, and we each jotted down uh the names of of five insects and and we agreed on those which was astonishing uh we decided that um it was not simply a matter of of uh, mortality um those which ones caused the most fatalities or which ones were the best known or whatever but which ones really, caused a change in human history and i I, my quote about that is never doubt for a moment that insects have affected human history because they really have and that's what we decided to write about so we agreed on five uh, had we chosen six, we would have disagreed over the sixth one. We we each had different ideas about which one would be next. So it's good that we we quit at five.
0: Five is a good number.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh and, and and manageable. Uh much more would have been difficult, and it would have been, I think, difficult to maintain the uh the theme. The other aspect about these five insects and the reason we came up with the title, The Silken Thread, was that all of the insects have to do in one way or another with um, the, the silkworm and the silk roads, which uh, were uh, developed as a response to or or as part of history of uh, moving silk around and all of the other aspects related to that. So all of the insects in one way or another uh, are related to this silken thread and the silk roads.
0: So what is the diversity of the insects, for example, compared to other animals like mammals?
2: orders many orders of magnitude greater who knows how many insects there are best estimates there are more than a million that have been described but described means the somebody has given them a a name or or at least they appear in a collection with a tentative name there are estimates anywhere from five to 50 million species of insects Uh, in contrast there are a few thousand um, mammals there are about 10,000 birds uh so they're they're considerably more diverse another group that's not known as well but likely to be somewhat similar in diversity would be the mites mites are um small arthropods that in many ways are some of them are parasitic on insects, some of them are um, free living, but uh, the arthropods, the insects, extremely diverse compared to any and all other organisms.
0: All right, so the spiders are not insects, they're arthropods.
2: Uh, yeah, so um, other arthropods, similar in their, mm. their um their structure and, and biology, but, um, so all insects are arthropods, but not all arthropods are insects.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, other, gotcha. other,
2: yeah. <clears throat>
0: so despite such a very small size, uh, like most of the insects are at least now, um, how did humans start maybe using them or utilizing them?
2: It would, I don't know of, um, uh, of a date when you could pinpoint humans using insects, but certainly uh, at least, well, uh, cultivating silkworms goes back almost 7,000 years. And so uh, that would have been a a fairly early use of, uh, of insects, which to me is astonishing to think about cultivating of recognizing that this thin strand uh, from a silkworm could be used, uh, passed into or, or created, um, creating um, clothing from it, fabric from it, that it could be woven together. And and then um, breeding these insects, it's very different than breeding cattle or, Or poultry, those things that have a a very proximal use, they're being used for food. Mm. But breeding uh, an insect who does not provide any food, but only uh, through many years of cultivation could uh, produce uh, a thin as a hair fiber. That could be woven into a fabric and used uh, not only for clothing but uh, eventually for use as currency uh, a variety of uses still used today in clothing and even in protective gear things like uh, vests bulletproof vests or combat helmets very lightweight but so going back at least that long seven thousand years in the case of of um uh silkworms um but a a number of different ways honeybees would be similar in terms of their use for uh collecting or producing honey from which we gather that as food um and uh the pollination of bees would not have been recognized early on but certainly necessary for uh, production of a lot of food. Um, so so our use of insects uh, goes back a long way, even if some of it may not have been understood completely. Mm. Um, in fact, early on, the Chinese in their cultivation of bees had a lot of the biology correct. They understood about workers and drones and and some of the biology but but they had the sexes completely backward they thought because it was a a society where the rulers were male and so they thought the the leader of the of the hive was a male and the workers were uh were males uh, because those were the ones that did the work in the in the fields at the time. And so uh, interesting that they were extremely precise in their descriptions, but they were totally inaccurate because they had the sexes wrong, Um, but obviously quite a ways back.
0: And what roles did and do insects play in the spreading of the human disease?
2: Well, that's much of what we wrote about in our book. Uh, Insects are, are quite important Um, I used to say in my class that uh, you, someone you love or someone you know, will be affected by either an insect-borne or other arthropod-borne disease in your lifetime. Because uh, the numbers of diseases and the movement of those around the globe are increasing as we have changes in temperature and some insects moving further uh, into more temperate areas, uh, that will be only increasing in the movement of, of uh, people and the diseases around the world. Uh, so, it, well, the most obvious one, and one that we did not write about, is malaria. Uh, worldwide, um, millions of Cases of malaria. I don't know that. Remember the numbers of fatalities now, but um, uh, very chronic, uh, and and found worldwide, primarily in tropical areas. But uh, the reason we did not write about that is it's not uh, born by one insect. There are a number of mosquitoes of the genus Anopheles that uh, transmit malaria. Uh, and there are many uh, species of plasmodium, the, uh, the causal agent of, uh, of malaria. And so we didn't write about those, but malaria being a huge one, ones that we did write about, uh, mosquitoes that cause yellow fever and, and now are, are also uh, transmitting dengue and a few of the other um, fevers lice uh transmitting typhus and typhus has been um, um a problem for humans forever gotten much more so as people get crowded together or in the con- uh as a consequence of of war or natural disasters fleas um uh, oriental rat flea being the the initiator uh, uh, the plague and the, the multiple pandemics, uh, bubonic plague that occurred throughout history. So yeah, insects are pretty important for transmitting diseases. Things that have, well, uh, insect-borne diseases uh, have killed more people than all the war- weapons of war throughout history. Um, important to realize, though, so insects have transmitted the pathogens, they've been vectors of the pathogens, but insects didn't kill anybody in the plague and they didn't kill anybody uh, from uh, typhus. Uh, They didn't kill anybody from yellow fever or malaria. Insects only are the vectors of the pathogens and it's the pathogens themselves that, that kill the humans.
1: And
0: what were some of the ways that people determined that the insects uh, were indeed vectors? Is it through epidemiology or some other ways?
2: You know, they were the studies for each of the ones that we wrote about. So uh, the yellow fever, mosquito, uh, oriental rat flea and human body lice. The studies combined a number of, of areas, field observations, Um, pathologists, uh, epidemiologists um, trying to understand how something could be transmitted and what it was transmitted. Early on, for example, yellow fever uh, no one knew what it was or certainly how it was passed around. Uh, Early on, one of the the major players, uh, the U.S. Army Surgeon General, James Sternberg uh, thought that uh, yellow fever had to have been caused by a bacterium. And he's, mm-hmm. he was a bacteriologist and he spent years uh, perfecting the art of taking photographs of slides of um, blood, to look at blood cells, to look for bacteria, and he was just unable to find them. Well, he wasn't able to find them because yellow fever is a virus, uh, or caused by a virus, not a bacterium. And the virus being so much smaller virus particles than a bacterium could not be seen by microscopes at the time. And uh, some of the studies that happened um, in the late 1800s on, on yellow fever Uh, early on it was thought by a cuban uh physician named carlos finley that mosquitoes were the the vectors of whatever it was that was causing yellow fever and no one believed him uh first of all mosquitoes mosquitoes just were they were they weren't anything special they were especially in the tropics they were just there all the time uh, and and nobody attributed anything like a disease being moved around by something as insignificant as a, a mosquito and uh, so finley was ignored for a long time and and as some studies were done uh, different commissions uh, yellow fever commission which was led by walter reed the physician uh, that did some very uh, very careful, very well thought out experiments to isolate different potential causes and show that it, it was indeed mosquitoes, uh, with, with confirming what Finley had said, that there were there, uh, certain times that mattered. And these studies were done even before Reed, that there were only certain times when a person having yellow fever could pass it on to someone else. And uh, there were other studies that showed there, that there were there a certain amount of time necessary before a mosquito could transmit yellow fever. And so the, a whole series of studies, in that case, yellow fever, in the case of the plague, uh, understanding who the reservoirs were uh how the the pathogen which was identified um as a bacterium uh how that could be transmitted from a reservoir species to humans um what was doing that and when they could do that again um just isolating the the pathogen in this case with the plague, um, the bacterium Yersinia pestis, uh, was necessary. Curiously, that was, uh, there were two, uh, medical people sent to Hong Kong in the pandemic that occurred the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, one from Japan, uh, and, um, let's see, Kitasato Shibasaburo, and one from uh, Switzerland, Alexander Yersen, that that went to Hong Kong, studied in independent um, labs. Uh, uh, Shibasaburo was put in a hospital with the finest clinical uh, facilities, uh, laboratories, shiny everything at the time, late 1800s, Yerson didn't have a laboratory. He had to, he, he created one in basically a grass hut uh, and brought microscopes with him in a chamber to grow things. And independently they found bac- bacteria. Uh, Yerson was correct. Uh, Shivasaburo uh, found one, but it was not the correct bacterium. But anyway, they both uh, were responsible for finding that bacterium independently, in the same place at the same time. And so, which happens a lot in science that you get things to a certain point and then you have independent discoveries. Uh, But but they didn't know how the transmission occurred. And that relied on on other observations and uh, scientific studies, who the reservoirs were. In this case, uh, the finding of of dead rats, uh, first in India, and that was um, uh, early, I think, around 1901, uh, a Frenchman named paul Louis Simon, who was also from the Pasteur Institute, uh, finding uh, dead rats and, and fleas on infected rats. And so he was doing some studies, some tests, and he, he found these in India, but he worked in uh, what's now Karachi, Pakistan. But... He was doing his studies. So these are rats that, that died from bubonic plague, and they had fleas on them, which could be potentially passing that on. He was doing those studies in a hotel room. He didn't have access to a lab. And that, that had me thinking, can you imagine traveling and the person in the room
1: no. in the oh, hotel boy. where you stay
2: staying next to you is working on bubonic plague and uh, just how frightening that had to be. Um, But it it was, it was interesting to me that in this, that everything we thought we knew about the plague, that it was rats and rat, Oriental rat flea transmitting this all came from this third pandemic. The one that occurred late, 1800s until the early 1900s uh and and that was certainly true for that pandemic but we then attributed that cause and all of the players to the two previous major pandemics of plague one uh, occurring in the uh 600s or 540 excuse me um, Five, about the year 540 uh, and that killed potentially as many as 50 million people, it was something like a quarter of the population on Earth. Uh, those numbers nobody knows, and they may be in dispute, but we attribute the same cause to that plague and the Black Death in the 1300s through um, 1700s. Um, but uh, but it, it's wrong. Uh, that's not what caused the plague and how it was transmitted during uh, those earlier pandemics. So it was, uh, to me, it was interesting. Uh, there was a a comedy troupe in the 1970s uh, that had uh, uh, an album entitled Everything You Know Is Wrong. And that's what I thought Think we were at with understanding the plague. What I taught in class about the Black Death was that it was rats and rat fleas, and um, and certainly rats played some role. Rat fleas played a minor role, important but minor role. But it was other players that did it. Um, what what we learned along the way. Um, was that certainly um, black rats played a role in moving things along on ships. They were called ship rats as well. Brown rats played some role, but brown rats didn't get to Europe until the 17th century. And the two earlier plagues were in the 7th century and the 14th century So brown rats were not the players in that case, um, nor the reservoirs, Hmm. uh, the the reservoirs of Yersinia pestis being gerbils in the high deserts of Asia. Uh, So um, everything we knew was pretty well wrong. Um,
0: social conditions are very conducive to the spread of the disease by insects?
2: Uh, Definitely. um, uh, Poverty, uh, the inability to protect oneself uh, from insects or to have treatment uh, when a disease occurs, um, crowding, uh, whether it's living conditions or uh, in the aftermath of uh, either a natural disaster or war uh, are, are definitely uh, conditions that make insect transmission and, and the disease spread uh, much, uh, much easier. Uh, things like uh, after World War II, the... Um, crowding together of refugees uh, in Europe in particular, uh, also in Japan, that uh, typhus was spread and there was very nearly uh, what would have been a, uh, an incredible epidemic and, and uh, loss of, of life in Europe uh, after World War II, except for uh, the use of DDT. And, and today we, we think DDT is a scourge and it certainly has very serious negative uh, environmental consequences. But at the time, the use of DDT uh, stopped the, the epidemics of typhus in uh, post-World War II. Typhus right after World War I killed something like two and a half million uh, in Russia alone uh, and so the, the uh, impact that would have occurred in World War II would have been every bit as uh, potentially as severe. And so those sorts of, of um, uh, conditions, um, crowding, poverty, our, our education, are especially uh, important in the spread of disease.
0: And what are the roles of insects in the production of our food? So you already mentioned bees, for example.
2: Mm-hmm. Bees are the ones that, that get the most attention and press. There, there are a lot of pollinating uh, organisms, insects in particular, but not only insects. Birds and bats pollinate flowers uh, and and uh, help with food production, but but insects... Are the, are the pollinators, capital P pollinators, <clears throat> um, primarily bees, uh, but a number of flies as well. Yeah. If you like chocolate, uh, you need to be grateful for a tiny midge, uh, one of two kinds of, of tiny flies that pollinate uh, the, the flowers of cacao and, and produce chocolate. Uh, and so... Uh, conserving that insect is going to be crucial for enabling uh, us to have chocolate forever. Uh, but bees, and it's, it's uh, both cultivated bees and also those that are naturally occurring, um, naturally occurring bees that pollinate plants, especially in their native habitat, uh, less so for crop plants that are moved from one continent to another. In fact, the importation of honeybees to North America from Europe occurred after colonization of North America by Europeans who brought their food plants with them and were not very successful in uh, in getting them pollinated and getting food production because the native bees weren't as efficient at pollinating some of the, uh, the imported crops as the, um, the bees from their the, the ancestral home of both the crop and the, and the bees. And so movement of fruit crops, for example, to North America, uh, from Europe and Asia, uh, required pollination of uh, the Western honeybee. And uh, Western honeybee now at least in North America, responsible for a large percentage of the food that we consume, uh, fruits and many vegetables in particular. Um, And so, uh, well, for one example, uh, the the crop almonds in the state of California requires pollination by Western honeybees. And there's something like a million acres, so whatever that be, 400,000 hectares, 450,000 hectares of of almonds in California. And at the the time that they're flowering, which is about a two to three week period, uh, they require um, a large number of honeybees to do the pollination. There are not that many bees resident in California. So they're shipped from all over North America, colonies of bees to California, for that uh, two to three week period of pollination, um, and it's uh, the bees are extremely uh, effective in pollination and, and provide that crop, which is I forget how many billion dollar uh, crop now. Um, yeah, but they're, the bees are responsible for a lot of uh, pollination, a lot of the food that we consume. So um, honey in particular. Um, other bees and uh, they they're a a resource that needs to be protected (laughs) but we also need to remember that honeybees are not native to North America and they can cause some negative effects uh, on uh, native bees Uh, my colleague Ray Fisher uh, referred to uh, honeybees as six-legged cattle or six-legged livestock because um, they're treated like livestock in many ways. Uh, we ship them around, we use them to produce food for us. Um, we provide some care for them, but um, in some cases, not the greatest care. Um, but they, uh, anyway, they, we don't treat them all that well sometimes.
0: Yeah, and with regards to invading species, there was recently a scare, wasn't there, in North America about the killer wasps?
2: Yeah, the, they call it the murder hornet, yeah. uh, which, um, uh, which got a lot of news because of its name. And, and so thinking it was going to be uh, harming humans, it's, it's really one to harm insect uh, colonies, especially bee colonies. But it's it's a large hornet, so it would get uh, someone's attention. Uh, but uh, we've you know, there have been invasive insects uh, forever, um, as long as there has been trade moving around. Um, invasive insects were almost the demise of the citrus crop in California in the 1800s, and it wasn't until the use of um, Uh, A biological control agent, several of them, a couple of species that kept the uh, scale insect that affected the citrus crops, uh, those biological control agents were able to bring down the the number of pests, and they've been doing so ever since. Uh, And so a case of a beneficial insect being used against an invasive insect, and that's, uh, that's still going on uh, worldwide.
0: And what impact could the climate change have on the insect populations?
2: Climates, <clears throat> there isn't any one answer to that, but there, mm. there will be uh, impacts. There, there's unquestionably um, uh, already impacts occurring as uh, temperatures change and we see in some cases, uh, insects moving from more tropical I- into temperate areas. And so whether they're direct, uh, directly impacting humans by
1: um,
2: carrying disease uh, that perhaps were once tropical diseases into subtropical areas, uh, that's, that's one effect, certainly. Uh, changes that will occur in in the uh, pollination, in the timing of uh, when insects um, are active. In some cases with pest insects, we'll see that they may have um, an additional generation. And so rather than one or maybe two generations where they could be causing damage to a crop, for example, Maybe they will now have three generations, and so the numbers can build up uh, quickly and to a large extent. So that will have impact on on uh, food production, no no question. But one that that I used to lecture about, and I've now uh, seen in print too, is with the the effect of of climate on migrating songbirds. And it's, um, it's because songbirds that from, let's say from temperate North America that migrate for the winter to tropical Central or South America. And they, they return based on um, uh, day length or some local effect where they're, they're found in their wintering grounds. And they fly north, but they're not aware that there may be uh, an advancement in the, uh, in the progression of plant growth and insect growth in the northern climes. And so um, a bird may arrive and find that the insects it relies on uh, for feeding has already completed development or it's at a developmental stage that's no longer able to provide food. And so our migrating songbirds that are insect feeders are likely to uh, suffer from this asynchrony that will develop as a result of, of the effects of climate change in more temperate areas. Uh, and, and it's not just songbirds. There are um, shorebirds that are, are, going to be affected, waterfowl even, because of, of what they have to feed on, especially when they're, uh, they're producing young or they're young or very small. Uh, and so, the, um, yeah, climate change will affect insects and that will affect um, ecosystems in a variety of ways.
0: So you introduced the mosquito as a very potent vector for spread of some of the very nasty diseases like malaria. So what are some of the ways that we can challenge and address this and maybe stop or prevent the spread of the disease on this large scale?
2: Well, for one thing, uh, the, there are multiple mosquitoes and in different ones responsible for different diseases. Uh, different mosquitoes also rely on uh, different conditions for their their growth and spread, and so there's there's not a universal um, solution to um, to preventing disease or ameliorating the the effects of, of disease caused by mosquitoes. Uh, for example. Um, some mosquitoes are, are nighttime biters, uh, are daytime, some, uh, only at dusk and dawn. And, uh, and so changing activity patterns on the part of humans or uh, when we're available to be bitten, uh, will certainly have some effect, but it may, uh, make us more prone to being bitten by a different mosquito. Uh, carrying a different disease. Or um, uh, one thing that we suggest in, in the U.S. is to reduce the breeding locations for mosquitoes. So, for example, keeping um, the gutters on houses clean so there's no pooling of water there, which a mosquito could... Uh, produce another generation in just a, sh- a few days cleaning out something like bird baths, um, we have bird baths because we like to have birds in our backyard but we need to cl- keep them clean or they'll be producing mosquitoes um, old swimming pools especially from houses that may have been uh, abandoned or or uh, foreclosed upon and so they're not maintained they no longer have the the chemicals in them that would uh, not allow mosquitoes to breed. And so you have a swimming pool becoming a a giant um, breeding ground for mosquitoes, a a disused uh, swimming pool at that. Um, And so uh, in, in, uh, temperate areas, things will be a little bit different than in tropical areas. Tropical, uh, some of the things that have helped, especially with malaria, have been things like bed nets that are impregnated with, um, with an insecticide. And so it can knock down the, the nighttime uh, mosquitoes that are able to transmit disease if, if they cannot reach um, a human and bite them and, and transmit them, uh, the plasmodium in the case of malaria. So bed net nets and their availability has been huge. Um, now, universally uh, available is a, is a challenge because of cost, uh, distribution. It's a known solution that's very effective, but it still has to be uh, delivered and deployed appropriately to be effective. Uh, some of the um, uh, anti-malarial drugs that can be effective are not always uh, economically available to the disadvantaged. And so increased availability of those would, would uh, decrease the um, uh, incidence of mosquito-borne diseases. Um, there are some, some new techniques being tried with uh, releasing sterile uh, male mosquitoes to breed with females in order to um, reduce the successful production of, of the next generation of mosquitoes. Um, uh, some, some new molecular methods, and you may know these better than I do, that are, are being attempted to um, uh, to have a very uh, focused um, attention and and use on specific mosquitoes and thought to be better uh, in the environment not causing the environmental harm that something like a, a spray of insecticide would and, but there again um, they're not universal and something that can be used against anopheles or one species of anopheles may not be effective being used against aedes aegypti the yellow fever mosquito
0: so how do you see the future of our relationship with those five species that you wrote about
2: boy Uh, well some of them We'll see some of the uh, relationships being more positive. We have to treat honeybees better to um, uh, continue to get the food that they're responsible for producing through their pollination. <clears throat> so our, our attitudes and, and actions toward Western honeybee has to be improved uh and there are a variety of, of ways that is being tried or will be uh understanding a few of the others for example the the oriental rat flea that is implicated in in um uh transmission of the plague there's going to have to be um greater study of that flea its it's probably not one species, it's probably multiple species, uh, is, is my guess, and especially Ray's guess, um, where it's located and how it uh, may be inter- interacting with uh, potential hosts in its, uh, in its own location. Uh, it'll still not be appreciated, but, uh, but if it's understood better, studied a bit better, uh, perhaps we can know even more precisely how the um, uh, the transmission of the plague is occurring, or um, living in in uh, uh, in the host uh, reservoir species. Uh, lice lice aren't going to be loved any more in the future than they are now. Uh, lice are one of those insects that. I say, cause instant revulsion. Anybody and everybody, anyone who has a child uh, hates to think about getting a note from their child's uh, school teacher or uh, or a child care uh, provider saying your your child has head lice and uh, head lice being not the disease transmitter and the body lice are, but lice are lice, and they, even though there are many species of them, um, they all cause uh, revulsion, so we're not likely to change our attitude, uh, at least in in favor of lice at all. Uh, yellow fever mosquitoes. You know, it's it's interesting that now there are other mosquitoes that are being implicated in transmission of yellow fever. Uh, yellow fever did not previously occur in the Americas. It was after it was brought. Uh, from Africa uh, to the Americas, that um, the mosquito and the uh, the virus yellow fever um, uh, caused uh, epidemics in the Americas um, because that that was one that was solely in in Africa for eons. Uh, it was. Uh, In connection to the silken thread here, it was the silken or the silk road that led to the movement of sugarcane westward into uh, West Asia, then into the Mediterranean, then into the Atlantic, uh, where uh, sugarcane production uh, attracted the use of slavery and the movement of slaves from uh, from Africa for the production of sugarcane into first South America, then uh, into the Caribbean and um, uh, in, in tropical areas of the, the Americas. And it was the movement of the slaves that uh, led to the accidental introduction of the yellow fever mosquito and uh, the... Uh, the virus that they transmit, and uh, and so here you have this connection: sugarcane that originated in in far southeastern Asia, uh, whether in southeastern uh, China, uh, some think maybe it, it could have been in in southern India, but movement of that plant that uh, was responsible for the movement of millions of humans to the Americas for slavery and the transmission of, um, or the, the transit of the mosquito and the virus that cause this disease now throughout, uh, tropical America. Um, and so the, the connections and the, the thread that, that passes through these, which is why, uh, our book got its title, um, because there is a thread that passes through uh, all of these species
0: yeah it's fascinating it's all so complex and so interconnected
2: you know the interconnections were uh, I'm an ecologist I understand interconnections or I thought I'd do it and yet we find um, much more complex connections than we even envisioned and so um as in the case of uh, the, as I mentioned, the yellow fever or the plague, Uh, it's the bacterium Yersinia pestis is found in the high deserts of Asia. It's a soil borne bacterium, but it has difficulty living in the soil, especially where it's, um, Uh, receiving radiation from the the sun the solar radiation can kill it so how does this bacterium survive in um, in the high cold deserts of Asia well it's found in in the soil that's in the burrows of um, of these gerbils that are colonial nesters and uh, even then it it can't survive well in the soil, but it's, it's um, uh, engulfed by a soil borne amoeba mm. and uh, amoeba uh, engulf many bacteria, other things in the soil. And um, they, once they're ingested, they are uh, digested within the amoeba, but the Yersinia pestis uh, causes the amoeba to not digest it. So the, the bacterium is protected within this amoeba, in the vacuole in the amoeba, and uh, protected from desiccation in the soil and uh, presumably from soil or solar radiation being found in the burrows of the... Uh, of the gerbils. And, and so who would have thought that a soil borne amoeba is what influences the bacterium that has killed a hundred million people uh, over the past thousand years, two thousand, fifteen hundred years. Uh, and so it's these connections that we the more we look the more we're able to discern and and to tease apart and you know it's it's the sort of thing where basic studies basic science that often gets um dismissed or at least uh, diminished in the eyes of, of the general public why would you need to look at amoeba uh who cares about amoeba well you know here's a case of of a a study that that found something that absolutely has ties to human history and human health and so it's it's these unanticipated uh, threads that form webs uh, which underlies so much of what's happening in in the world and You know, that's, that's why I was, why I find science fascinating. It's, it's, we don't know what we don't know. And, uh, and it requires uh, sometimes um, uh, an obscure study uh, or finding an obscure study to uh, help tease these things apart. So it it makes it fun, you know, Mm -hmm.
0: So, what other discoveries in your research and journey of writing your book, The Silken Thread, surprised you?
2: Oh boy. I you know, I I jokingly say, well, the first part's true. I learned something new every single day when I was writing. Absolutely. Things that range from I didn't know that to jaw-dropping, like holy cow. I had no idea. And so the joke is that I would run to my wife who was in her sewing room and say, did you know this? Uh, Every day. And finally, the joke is that she locked herself in her sewing room and stuffed a towel under the door so she wouldn't have to hear me say, did you know this? Or she'd say behind the muffled uh, the sound behind the door saying, I can't wait to discuss that next week uh, because I would go to her daily with things that were uh, amazing to me uh, and and a lot of the the things that were amazing to me and and unexpected, I will credit with my co-author Ray Fisher, Ray could find the most obscure references, And uh, when we were writing about the plague and trying to figure out what the causes were, Ray kept coming up with one new reference after another. And so it would change the story or how we presented it. And it would change again as he found another one. And I was getting a little bit uh, exasperated and I was about ready to say, Ray, I don't wanna hear any more new references. And then he came up with one more and it was the reference about the amoeba and uh, it's protecting the bacterium. And so I'm glad I didn't say that to Ray because he came up with what was the best reference in the book. And, uh, um, but it was, that was a true surprise. Uh, I was surprised about the, really the importance of lice uh i knew they transmitted typhus. I wasn't aware of how much typhus influenced so many aspects of life um of human history from the um emigration of Irish during the, the Great Hunger in the middle eighteen hundreds after the potato blight decimated the the crop in in Ireland and um and that they carried typhus and lice with them as uh, they emigrated. Two million Irish left uh, the country in the wake of that um, that potato famine. Um, you don't realize how much potatoes mattered to a, to a people, in this case, uh, to the Irish, that the, the average male was consuming more than 10 pounds of potatoes a day. And potatoes don't have a whole lot of nutrition in them. So you got to eat a lot of them to get, uh, to get many nutrients. And, and the consumers were still not doing well. They were um, even eating that many. But then the loss of that crop, which was the primary food for so many people, uh, caused extreme starvation. Uh, The emigration of of the Irish, uh, more than a million of which went to North America, Uh, and the movement of them on these ships that were not meant to carry hundreds of people uh, at a time. Uh, They were treated poor. Uh, They were extremely poor getting on the ships and sometimes would have to basically pay what little money they had to someone to get them onto a ship. Uh, where they were provided little food, even less water. And uh, the, these ships ended up, um, they were called the coffin ships because so many of the people transported westward were dying. And the irony of being called the coffin ship is they were not provided coffins. They were, the dead were thrown overboard. Uh, and those that arrived in North America, especially in Canada, um, being a, a British colony still at the time. And, and um, the treatment that uh, those that arrived in Canada received was little better than on the ship, uh, crowded into what were called fever sheds where they had um, little food, little water, some care, but many of the care providers uh, died then from, uh, from typhus as well. And so I really didn't know about that aspect of, of uh, typhus and the, the causal agent, that being lice. Uh, I knew a bit about lice and their impacts uh, in warfare, um, the numbers, of uh, people dying from typhus um, and, uh, and you know, many in the, um, in the camps, uh, the, the Nazi camps, uh, many died from typhus because of the unsanitary crowded conditions. And uh, once typhus got into uh, into the population then being spread rapidly, um, I, I wasn't aware I guess about the time I started the book, I became aware of of the roles of insects in in the history of Napoleon. And um, we finished the book talking about uh, Napoleon being, to our knowledge, the only major uh, military leader ever defeated three times by insects. And uh, so, coming as a surprise, first of these being uh, the invasion by Napoleon into Egypt, uh, looking to extend the uh, the empire into northern Africa, and also then eastward into uh, into what was called Syria at the time, uh, to try to establish a route to have influence on India. They wanted to decrease the the um, importance of, of England uh, in that route between England and India. And so Napoleon invading uh, Egypt and then moving the armies into the, the Middle East, um, certainly facing local opposition, but uh, plague uh, got into his troops and uh, decimated his troops really causing the, the failure of that invasion and the retreat uh, from Syria and from, from Egypt. So that that whole effort failed. They didn't establish a toehold there. Uh, next uh, in the uh, late 1800s, or, I'm sorry, early 1800s, uh, where the French colony of Haiti and the, the slave uprising uh, at one time, Haiti was the second most wealthy uh, colony in the New world uh, and um, because of sugar. And so they had a large slave population um, the recognition of um, the possibility of freedom which came after the French Revolution. The, the Liberté, Egalité, uh, Fraternité that applied in, in France uh, it did not apply to their, uh, their slaves in Haiti. And so the, the uprising caused Napoleon to send troops to uh, quash the uh, slave rebellion. And the troops ran into... Um, uh, uh, a formidable foe that they had not anticipated and that being mosquitoes and yellow fever. And so, um, I forget the numbers, 40% of the the troops that were there were, were dying from yellow fever, including, uh, major uh, significant general and Napoleon's brother-in-law that were sent to lead these. So the French, um, abandoned uh, Haiti they also abandoned the colonies in uh, in most of North America and and sold to the young United States this area that became known as the Louisiana Purchase and so the rise of the United States as a an economic and and other global power really the result of France selling this, property to the United States and that being the result of mosquitoes and yellow fever uh, causing uh, the French to abandon. Um, So in that case the second defeat of Napoleon and then the third being in in Russia in 1812 and the invasion of Russia by the Grand Armée and whatever it was, 650,000-fold uh, troops from everywhere uh, that, that marched into Russia. And they, they certainly faced a formidable uh, Russian army and, and general, but they also uh, ran into uh, typhus. And uh, es- especially as uh, they began to retreat and the cold weather uh, um, and people trying to stay warm, soldiers trying to keep warm, and so when one of their colleagues died, they would take the um, the uniform or the coat or something from them to add as another layer, and and lice uh, lived in the clothing, and uh, so they caused the they bit the the human transmitted the disease but they they lived in the clothing uh, in proximity to humans to stay warm but so movement of clothing meant they were moving the disease around and and so it was only a small number of of troops I forget 25,000 or something that that were able to help march out of Russia still healthy um, and a significant part of that being caused by uh, lice and typhus wasn't the only reason Napoleon lost in Russia, but that was sort of the, um, the, the, the illness depleting numbers and causing the, the weakness among troops and um, that certainly had a major impact. So here we have Napoleon defeated three times by something as tiny as three small insects, a flea, a mosquito and a louse. Uh, not what one remembers of him, or certainly not what's uh, inscribed on his tomb. I will say, however, that Napoleon, the symbol of the Napoleonic Empire, was a honeybee. And so uh, Napoleon did uh, also interact with that of our five species. And, uh, and to stretch just a bit, Napoleon wore silk breeches and... Uh, and silk stockings, and so here we hit all five of our insects with one character, that being Napoleon Bonaparte.
0: And nowadays we've got, I don't know if you can call it fad, but a real fashion of trying to eat insects as a sustainable food. So have you eaten insects? What's your opinion?
2: I have. um, uh, You know, they're okay. It's, uh, It's not... Something I readily eat, but um, but I have and I used to uh, for for my class I would bake cookies that were made partly from cricket flour, and uh, as long as the students were not allergic to uh, shellfish, uh, they um, uh, we could uh, offer that to them to eat, and most all tried them. Some were a little bit reticent just the thought of it. They couldn't taste it at all, uh, but um, some actually were happy that other students didn't want to eat them because that meant they got a second cookie. Uh, but uh, but it, is, uh, it is a big deal, and it's going to be even bigger uh, in the future because uh, insects can provide a significant amount of protein and, uh, and fat uh, in the human diet and they've been doing so forever. Um, it's just now that instead of being collected, they're being grown. And, uh, there are, um, research centers that are, uh, studying how best to produce some of the food, uh, some of the insects that can provide food. Uh, there are, um, a number of restaurants that serve insects uh, as food and it's in the names of the insects or the, the images that are, are shown of the, of the restaurant. Uh, there uh, a few years ago, one of the uh, American baseball teams uh, served crickets uh, at one of the concession stands in the stadium. And they, oh. um, they got a, a, a pretty good following people uh, Uh, bought them, uh, bought them uh, quite readily. They were well seasoned and, and uh, even better marketed. And so uh, insects as food will be even more prominent in the future. It it won't be that people are necessarily eating uh, crickets or eating uh, uh, the caterpillars of, of butterflies, but they'll be processed in a way that Uh, Can be added to food to extend um, the the food and provide more more uh, nutrients, protein and fat in particular. But the the nutrient quality of of insects is incredible. In some cases, much better uh, provision of certain nutrients than than beef or um, or other uh, domestic. Um, For our two-legged uh, animals too, so it's it's going to be important.
0: Mm, some sustainable, healthy, crunchy locust uh, snacks.
2: <laughs> yeah, it could be crunchy as a snack, or it may be uh, ground into flour and, and made into uh, uh, into cookies or into snacks in some way or another. But yeah, a variety of ways. We'll we'll see that more so.
0: Yeah, cookies is a great gateway food. <laughs>
2: yeah absolutely um and uh yeah we see them eaten at a lot of uh festivals around the u.s insect festivals where they're served whether they're stir-fried uh, mealworms or their crickets uh, or they uh grasshoppers on a stick or on kebabs or something like that but there are uh, uh, some ways that are are um are very visible and fun and and then other ways that will be uh, uh, not quite as visible, but probably even more prominent.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So what is your next project?
2: Oh boy. Uh, well, with our, our cross-country move, I'm a little bit um, uh, slow to start another project. I did, I am thinking quite a bit about, um, the role of mosquitoes and the diseases they transmitted in, uh, in warfare. Uh, one chapter that I wrote that, um, that I wrote, right. It wasn't real involved in this one that did not make it to the book was about, um, mosquitoes and malaria in the battle for new Guinea in the second world war. And, um, it, it may have been the one of the better chapters written and, and it didn't make it to the book. So perhaps that'll be in the next book that we'll uh, see something about uh, the, the role of, of mosquitoes. And uh, I mean, they were very big in, in the um, uh, impact of the War of the Pacific where malaria was uh, depleting uh, Japanese soldiers' uh, numbers or weakening them and uh, the allies were able to to throw fresh troops into the into the battle and so uh, that we're not yet exposed to malaria so that one that one may be i know ray is uh is starting a book on mosquitoes and uh and so between the two of us maybe we'll collaborate on another one or two of these
0: excellent i hope you come and talk to us again about your upcoming books
2: That sounds great. And uh, thank you very much for the the interview and for your time.
0: Excellent. So, thank you so much for joining me today. And hopefully, our listeners can find more information about your book online as well.
2: Yeah, certainly. uh, Amazon, I know, carries it. Some online sellers uh, do uh, Oxford uh, University Press um, sells the book online, and, and some of the local bookstores. I prefer shopping at a local bookstore where I can, or you can get the, uh, the bookstores to order the, uh, the book from the, the publisher. So, uh, yes, hopefully there's some interest in
0: it. Great. So thank you so much for talking to me today.
2: Thank you very much. Bye now.